My name's Mike Parker Pearson, and I'm a professor in the Institute of Archaeology. We've recently published a new chronology for Stonehenge. Stonehenge is at the centre of a long-lived ceremonial landscape. In 2008, our excavations along the avenue, the ceremonial approach into Stonehenge, uh, we discovered that the banks of that avenue were actually put on top of what seemed to be natural landforms. So ridges and in between them wide and deep um, fissures caused by periglacial activity in the last ice age, which actually lines up with the sun's maximum extents at sunrise and sunset, uh, midsummer sunrise, midwinter sunset. So it may well be that these were seen as somehow of cosmological significance, where the earth and the heavens came together. Thanks to our excavations, not just by our own team, but other teams over the last 20 years, we've now established that Stonehenge was built in a series of different stages. First of all, shortly after 3000 BC, it begins with a bank and a ditch, but also upstanding features such as standing stones and timber posts. It's also at that moment that people started to use it as a cemetery. And it continued being used as a cemetery for at least 200 years and probably 500 years. Uh, it's then that the next stage of construction was uh, put up, and that is these large sarsen stones, they're a type of sandstone, they come from the Marlborough Downs about 20 miles away, whereas the smaller stones already in place had come from the Priscelli Hills in West Wales, a distance of 180 miles. We started work about 10 years ago, and our initial uh, emphasis was not on Stonehenge itself but actually on a nearby henge called Durrington Walls and what we established was that Stonehenge was just one part of this much larger complex linked by avenues to the River Avon. What we discovered were the houses of what must have been not just hundreds of people but thousands of people and it was there that we were able to work out that this was quite probably the workers' camp and through radiocarbon dating and statistical modelling of all those dates, we could see that it had been inhabited for less than 45 years. So we think that that's the time period in which Stonehenge was built. One of our other major uh, advances was to find out at what times of year people were actually inhabiting this village. Because although it's the largest known settlement from the Neolithic in northwestern Europe, it seems to have been occupied only seasonally. People coming in for particular times of the year. And we can track that by investigating the culling of the animals. Because uh, thanks to the, the way that their teeth grow, you can age them quite precisely to within months. So from spring birth, we were seeing that the majority were killed around nine months later, and then the rest of them uh, some 15 months from birth. So this really fixed the occupation of 
this large settlement to the winter time and the summer time. And of course those are extremely important um, points within the Neolithic calendar at Stonehenge because Stonehenge's main alignment is towards the midsummer sunrise and in the opposite direction the midwinter sunset. Within Britain we get a, a proportion of the cattle teeth which have a signal that we can only match in Highland Scotland and maybe Aberdeenshire. The types of houses they lived in, the style of pottery that they were making, the very concept of the henge itself, these all seem to have originated in some very small islands off the north coast of Scotland that we call the Orkney Islands. To find cattle coming from almost as far away, I mean that suggests that not only were people from Orkney also coming to this do, but the, you know, the innovations that brought the whole of Britain together actually come from the very extreme edge of, of this country. What we're seeing is at least five constructional stages at Stonehenge. One shortly after 3000 BC, one around 2500, then two small phases of rearranging the smaller stones in the next um, three, four hundred years, and then a, a very last gasp somewhere around 1500, 1600 BC. They dig holes apparently to move stones, but the stones are never moved. Whatever they planned never succeeded. The, those last stages of construction also coincide with a fundamental social change in Britain, and that's the arrival of uh, what we call the Beaker people. This is a continental style of ceramics and burial, but also an entirely new lifestyle. These are people that have been using metals, the wheel and other innovations which have been absolutely absent from Britain for hundreds of years. So Britain was basically cut off from the continent uh, uh, up until the arrival of the Beaker people around 2400 BC. They are much more individualizing than the, the collective power structure within Britain. They also are not prepared to work en masse for just a few people. So the great monument building that's going on in Britain at this time, and it's not just Stonehenge, but many other timber circles, stone circles, earthen mounds of giant proportions like Silbury Hill. These come to an end within two centuries of Beaker arrival. They're coming from parts of Europe that don't have these kinds of traditions at all. They don't have these great gathering centers. It's a much more dispersed, decentralized uh, social structure. And as it's adopted in Britain, so the whole rationale for these kinds of mega constructions simply disappears. What's exciting for us is that we're going to be able to investigate the sources of the stones for Stonehenge. The Sarsons themselves, the sources may have been discovered 300 years ago by someone uh, that we would call an antiquarian, a sort of from the, uh, 
early days of archaeology and some 20 miles north of Stonehenge, he actually wrote detailed notes of where he saw holes that he reckoned the stones had been brought from. Uh, no one's ever been back to look. It sounds extraordinary, but they haven't. Uh, the other area of interest is West Wales, and it's an area just north of the Preseli Hills and on the northern flanks of those hills where the stones that we call blue stones, and these are the smaller ones, they're on average about two tons each, where they seem to have been quarried and brought. So we're going to be investigating the quarries, and again, up till now, they've never been located. And we suspect that they may have been associated with their own henge. If we're right that the structure we've identified is, it is by far the largest henge in Wales. And that may give us a really important clue into what Stonehenge was all about because there's the possibility now that Stonehenge was actually constructed using the raw materials of two separate henges in two different parts of Britain, and thereby actually unifying the two of them into a single entity. We're starting to think of Stonehenge not as a temple where people come on pilgrimages and come to worship, on a long-term basis. All our evidence suggests that it is used in a very punctuated form over time. People come, they construct, they feast, they go away. And this is really changing our notion of Neolithic religious belief, uh, that it's all in the building rather than the idea of building something in order to do something with it, which is very much our 20th century take on the world. Um, what we have at Darrington Walls, uh, if we're right that this is the work camp, is that the houses show that we have entire household groups. So we're looking at men and women and children being involved in the whole thing. The, the huge concentration of resources shows that this is a very sophisticated infrastructure to support them. This is for people coming from the width and breadth of the whole island of Britain. So it's more than simply unnecessary food miles to bring those animals from all over the country. It's, it has to be part of a very deliberate act of unifying and bringing people together. <laughs>